Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Podcasting. That's what we do. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I am Ezra Klein, not Matthew Glaces. I'm here with Jane Coaston. It is the first Jane and Ezra only show. Hello, Jane. Hello, Ezra. It's exciting. It's very exciting. We finally got rid of all those other folks. Now we can we can have the real talk. It's true. We've thinned the herd. <laughs> so let's talk about how our elections are completely unsafe and already hacked. Uh, we ran a really, really deep investigation into election security over at Vox. It was by uh, Benjamin Wolford. And the, the piece, we'll put it in show notes, but it's called The Midterms Are Already Hacked. You Just Don't Know It Yet. And it is, I would say, one of the scariest pieces of reporting I've read in some time. He talked to over 100 people involved in either election administration, election security, election analysis. And what they told him was genuinely scary. I want to start us out by reading this one passage because I think it frames a problem really well. He writes, the United States this November, it won't have one midterm election or even 50, but a number closer to 10,000. Elections, he's saying here, are, are locally administrated. And it's these local officials, not the NSA, the FBI, or the Department of Homeland Security, who are standing four square against cyber attackers in November. It's as if America's most ancient civilian office, the local election clerk, has become saddled with new and alien responsibilities tantamount to a military contractor. And now here's a quote. We are at a fundamental disadvantage because it's not a fair fight, says a big tech security expert who spoke on background. It's now every county versus the FSB, which is the acronym for Russia's version of the CIA. So that seems bad. That seems very bad. And I think one of the interesting things about this piece, which I highly recommend everyone go read, is how it talks about election vulnerabilities that fall into three broad camps, so to speak. So there is the targeting of individual campaigns through DDoS attacks and that kind of thing, email theft, meddling, the hacking of our national discourse, propaganda efforts, which I think is what a lot of people are most familiar with when we talk about the 2016 election and Russian interference. And that I think most concerning to me is 
the vulnerability of the technology itself that underlies the election infrastructure. And I think that that's been something that's been coming up a lot recently. Um, There was a Twitter thread that went around yesterday that was talking about how in Texas, apparently on some of the touchpad election devices, it was switching people's votes. People who had voted straight ticket, uh, this specific person had voted straight ticket Democrat. When they went back through their votes, they saw that their vote for Beto O'Rourke had been switched to a vote for Ted Cruz. And they talked to the elections office in Texas, and Texas responded by saying, oh, you know, this has been happening for years. It's just, you know, you have to go back and check because this can happen all the time. And my first thought, you know, that doesn't sound at all reassuring. But the fact that because this is a local problem, these are local officials trying to deal with something that now takes on national importance. So there's this uh, line you hear sometimes when you worry about elections being hacked, which is that the unbelievable multiplicity of election administration in America is some kind of advantage because what folks will say is, look, you can't hack the American election. You can't hack the presidential election. You would have to hack all these different counties. And on the one hand, maybe that's somewhat reassuring because it would take more resources to do it. It's not like you could just find one vulnerability and exploit the whole thing. But on the other hand, like I think people need to think about this a little bit more. So it would not be hard for Russians or North Koreans or honestly just anyone, right, a group of effective hackers who just want to sow chaos to identify six midterm, six midterm House races that could flip the House or 12 or in a presidential election to log on to the upshot or log on to 538 and figure out what are a couple of counties in a couple of key states that could really change the outcome. And then let's say they don't even quite succeed. Let's just say they go in and they leave enough havoc in enough of them that and then leak it to the press such that all election results suddenly become contested, such that all the election results fall under doubt. I think people forget this, but there was a big argument about what Russia was trying to do in the 2016 election and what previously to succeeding beyond their wildest dreams and electing Vladimir Putin's best friend, Donald Trump, what they thought they were doing um, in America, which was not actually that they were going to hack the election and change who won. They didn't think they could do that. What they were going to do was sow chaos. What they were going to do was show that America's vaunted political system, its democracy, is not that democratic, it's not that trustworthy, it's not that safe, and they're going to turn us against each other by just throwing everything into doubt. And if you imagine this not as like a hacking operation, but as a dissension operation, like as, a, as an operation to sow instability and chaos, it would not at all be hard to target a couple of the weakest and most critical county election systems. And whether or not you actually change the votes, you could certainly leave enough havoc to make people wonder if you had. And trying to imagine what the aftermath of that would be, it's not like we have strong procedures in this country. We don't have a procedure for rerunning an election because now we don't believe the outcome. We have no idea what would happen. And we're, we're, not, we're not even talking about this effectively. Right. And I think that there's something to be said about the notion that the goal was not inherently, you know, with Russian interference or with interference in general, the goal is not necessarily, like, ah, we want to elect a specific person. It is to put the entire electoral process under scrutiny and raise questions about whether or not your votes count. And I think that that goes to kind of the second part of those three broad camps in which our election vulnerabilities fall into, which is, you know, information operations. And the piece goes into how there's been trainings on based on 
mock scenarios like a viral Facebook post that claims Latino voters are barred from voting that's being sent from a fake account mimicking the regional ACLU. And I think people who were deeply online in 2015, 2016, remember kind of the very viral Reddit-created threads. And you know, obviously, that's not Russian hackers. That's just people on Reddit or 4chan who are creating very, you know, posts that look like they're coming from the campaign of Hillary Clinton or the campaign of Donald Trump that say things like, we've got this, you don't need to vote, or telling people that they can vote by text message and then giving them a number, and the number actually works. And it says, like, thank you for voting or something like that, which you oh, think— that's so devious. Yeah, it's super devious. And for you and I, for majority of our listeners, they're thinking, you know, who would fall for that? But then you know someone, of course, did. And trying to take back those kinds of posts or trying to take back information is virtually impossible once it's out there. And so it's interesting that there has been some efforts made at conferences and by security experts and officials trying to figure out what to do about these kinds of online posts that are are coming not necessarily from, you know, the FSB or from North Korea, but just from, like, the Internet itself. I also want to go back to the the point you made about who would fall for that. I I would totally fall for that in another context. I mean, look, like I'm a professional political journalist, so I happen to know that they've not made voting by text message something you can do. Right. But if I were somebody who did not pay close attention to American politics and just assumed that American politics followed similar technological trends to everything else where I can donate to my favorite podcast by text message or donate to disaster relief by text message or just use text messages or email or all kinds of digital communication for all kinds of different uh, purposes. I can buy coffee on my phone. The idea, like the, the conceptual idea that you would be able to vote by text message, it seems totally reasonable, actually. Yeah. Um, the scariest of these is when they have plausibility and in some ways when they are more plausible than the incredibly bizarre, archaic system that we have actually constructed. And it's interesting because I feel as if there's kind of two groups here who are getting preyed upon by two different types of electoral interference. So the first group is the kind of very online, the people who would think that you could vote via text message because they do everything else via text message. But then you see the very not online. And those are the people who are voting on touchpads for their local county sheriff. And those touchpad technologies are all sold by one company. And the piece goes into, you know, how children have had these. And so it's interesting how there are two separate groups that both, you know, think of themselves in very different ways, but are equally vulnerable to different kinds of election interference. Yeah. And and so I want to go back to some of the numbers from the piece. I thought this was pretty striking. Since 9-11, the country has spent more than $100 billion securing about 5,000 airports. With 10,000 separate electoral jurisdictions in the U.S., the number of potential election targets is far greater, and the money allocated so far, $380 million, is a decimal of a percentage point in comparison. Something I think that this piece did a really good job of showing and that, that we don't talk enough about is we don't take elections seriously in this country. We don't take them seriously as something to protect. We don't take them seriously as something that we have principles that should govern, um, at least uh, to a large degree, how they are run. We've sort of outsourced how they are run to 10,000 different jurisdictions, many of which run them in in very different ways and sometimes in, in very problematic ways. Elections are like the wellspring of everything else in our political system, and we sort of treat them as things that are meant to take care of themselves, that they've worked before, so they should just work in the future. And 
you know, even after 2016, which should have been a real wake-up call, and you can go back to 2004 and the panic about Diebold machines and, and the way that, you know, you could have imagined that throwing the election in, out of legitimacy. And, and for many people did, right? There was a lot of talk among liberals that, that the election had been hacked. It's not a view I buy into, but, but it was definitely out there. You would think we would really try to harden this. We would think that, if nothing else, we'd want elections to be legitimate. But we've not put in the money and we've not put in the bipartisan like theory to do so. Um, there's this other part of the piece where they talk about senators this summer tried to pass an additional $250 million for states in time for the midterms. The amendment was blocked by Republican Senator Roy Blunt of Missouri. He called it a potential new entitlement. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's fascinating also because I think that we have an idea about elections. I think it plays into why the midterms traditionally, unlike this one, um, there's so much less attention from Americans. But it's interesting because the piece goes into how um, the campaign staffers of a congressional candidate in North Carolina found that – A website for their candidate, Linda Coleman, there was an entirely new one that had been created, and they hired a consultant to investigate, and they found that the website registration was Russian. And, you know, there was another congressional candidate running in Alabama, Tabitha Isner. You know, she alerted the FBI because the attempts to break into her campaign website had also come from Russia. So it's interesting that in local elections, while people in those localities often apparently, you know, aren't as invested in voting in them. People from St. Petersburg and elsewhere are very interested in those elections. Oh, so I, I, listen, I'm not an expert on this. I read that a little bit differently. I read that as practice runs. Not that Russia cares so much about these local elections, but that if you are Russia and you need to practice on how to break into local election systems or affect elections you care about, what you'd want to do is you would want to take a couple tries at it in pretty low stakes places where people aren't paying a lot of attention. Right. Like, how are you going to get those at bats? Well, you're going to you're going to use local elections as your targets. Ah, that's a good point, Ezra. It's it's really scary point. <laughs> right. Right. And I think that getting at getting at the fact that there are thousands of elections. And I really like, you know, you highlighted this in the excerpt you read that you know, we're talking we talk about the midterms, but we mean in in a sense about 10,000 elections. And these are happening, in, you know, all across the country and each of these is incredibly incredibly vulnerable and even, you know, uh, Democratic Senator Claire McCaskill had her Senate staff targeted with a spearfishing campaign. And, you know, these are high-level people with high name recognition among people who follow politics at the congressional level. And so it's not just these smaller elections that they're trying this on. It's Claire McCaskill is in a dogfight in Missouri. And so I think that it's interesting how it's happening all across the country. And one of the things that I just think is interesting about this, and, and this is a, a point Wolford makes in a number of times, but the people who run elections in this country, they're not IT specialists. You don't get into running your local election because you were Google's senior vice president of external affairs or, or you know, Facebook's um, data security chief, although not that that person seems to be doing such a great job. But you don't get into this job because you're into IT. You get into this because... 
you're into politics because you're civically engaged, because you're a party functionary in a in a county where your party controls power. There, there are a lot of reasons you might become involved in the administration of local elections, but virtually none of them have to do with IT. And yet now elections are, to a very heavy extent, an IT question. Um, they're, they're very much about information security. They're very much about whether or not the, the information devices you're using are usable by people, what you do when they break. And so you have this problem where the people coming at the elections are very sophisticated hackers, right? Like you and me, Jane, like compared to people who run elections oftentimes are probably pretty online. We work for a digital media company. We probably use two-factor authorization, like all these different things. Um, But we're not at all sophisticated compared to teams of Russian or North Korean or whatever, Belgian hackers. Right. And so like it is that gap, right? Both that the machinery is quite old, the software is being bought by a number of third-party vendors who are not great. They're they're making software to specifications that were constructed prior to the concern about election security against foreign agents. And then the people running this stuff don't know what they're doing on an IT level. Like that's a really bad mismatch. And I just I wish we could get people like in politics to see this is a real problem because I I just I don't know how to think about what would happen. Like right now, like my case, I don't think Russia swung the 2016 election. I know people disagree with this and it can go back and forth and I can't prove it because it was a very close election. But I think if you look at the evidence, I think things like Comey, things like the email stuff, like it was much bigger. Um, And so of the different things happening there, the Podesta emails that Russia hacked into and got and released and some of the other things that they did, I just don't see the evidence. It had a big effect on the vote. I, I have a podcast on my on my interview show coming out with John Size and Lynn Vavrek and Michael Tesler just wrote this great book, Identity Crisis, about the 2016 election. And they really go through the data on this and say, look, like, given the amount of information people are being exposed to, there just isn't reason to think that the extremely small quantity of information being pushed by Russia changed enough minds. But even so, the fact that it was out there trying, it has called a lot of the election into out for a lot of people. And you have to think of that as like an early and very successful test run, not just for Russia, but for all kinds of enemies, right? I mean, there might be reasons China wants to do something like this. Like there are all kinds of things that that can happen here. And you would not need much to really to really throw this into doubt. And then if it was in doubt, if, if we went back now and we could conclusively prove, or let me even put it differently, if we could not conclusively disprove that the key places in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania that swung those states in defiance of polling and expectations were correctly decided. If there was evidence of some tampering and now you had Republican county election administrators saying, no, nothing happened. Don't worry about it. We've looked into it. And you had like Democratic um, experts saying, no, 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 this looks really wrong. Um, Like, we need to do audits. And now they're saying, I'm sorry, we don't have paper ballots as a safeguard, which a lot of these machines don't. There's no way to do an audit. And so now you have an election that may no longer be legitimate. I mean, that kind of place, like, that's where you can get into genuine civil violence, right? Because um, one side feels that another side is taking power, is basically mounting a coup. Um, That's where you can get into really bad things. And so I just, I, I feel like we, 
even as we've had demonstrations of how badly this can go, even as we've had like this like klaxon warning going off in our ears now for years, I feel like we are really lacking in imagination about how bad this could get and how fast and like how good that would be for some of the people who would want it to be that way. I mean, a lot of other countries in the world, like what they would like is for America to be consumed by internal division. And like the really easy way to do that would be to delegitimize our political system at a time of very high polarization and very bitter competition. And like what this report is saying, like what this piece is saying, like what we know is it wouldn't be all that hard. And yet, are we treating this as an emergency? No. It's like a complete, like we know people are trying to do this. We see it coming. We know they've already tried to do it. We know Russia tried to hack into some things um, it, during the during the 2016 election, actual election systems. It doesn't look like they succeeded, but maybe who knows? Um and we're not we're not doing nearly enough. There's this quote in here from a, a security expert at, at a big technology corporation. He says, on a scale of one to ten, with ten being Pentagon security measures, elections have moved from a two to a three. Like that's bad. That's very bad. That's very not good. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for the weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. I think something that I want to get into a little bit, and because you brought up you know, voters in Michigan and Pennsylvania and elsewhere, and something that I think is interesting is that Part of the effort here, and I think you saw it a little bit in 2016, isn't just about making people think that their vote doesn't count. It's a demotivation effort. Mm -hmm. I've talked about this a little bit on Twitter, but the goal of 
any political campaign, in my view, is to motivate your voter and demotivate their voters. And so I think you saw that a little bit. And there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal about um, efforts to motivate black voters in 2018. And I remember there was a piece right after the 2016 election in the New York Times about uh, black voters in Milwaukee who didn't vote and didn't particularly care that they voted because they were not motivated. And they were also, in some senses, demotivated by the Trump campaign. They felt as if, you know, the Hillary campaign wasn't enough to get them in. They felt as if their votes didn't really count anyway. And they didn't really feel the call to talk about the issues or that felt that they'd been called to do so. Part of the issue also is not just, you know, internal divisions or a civil war of some sort. It is causing people to just give up entirely on the system because you can operate, you know, very effectively as a American without voting or getting involved in politics or seeing that as something that you can do. And we've seen that there was a terrific piece in The Atlantic a couple months ago about how while black civics has decreased as a result since the 2016 election, there has been more interest from African-Americans in voting and in getting out the vote. But just the 2016 election was, in it sounds, extremely demotivating for African-Americans. And I think that that needs to be part of how we talk about this. It's not just that external elements want to drive us to take up arms against our neighbor, but they want people to just stay home and give up. And I think that that's equally concerning to me. So here, I think, is the, the slightly tricky move to make in this conversation. I think we have a generalized view that sort of hacking an election, except in the most extreme circumstances, is something can only come from outside, right? That, you know, I mean, yes, if the Republicans or the Democrats like went in and changed the results, like that would be hacking the election. But but very small levels of interference from actual hackers or Russians or whoever, you know, information campaigns and other things that are considered on some level legitimate when, when political parties do them are, are illegitimate when they come from outside. And so... I think it's worth taking a little bit of a principles-level view of this. Like, what we're saying is that there's a real problem when somebody intends to vote for a candidate, tries to vote for a candidate, and is prevented from having that vote count or count for the right candidate. And you can mess that up at any of those levels, right? You can mess up their intention by giving them bad information. You can mess up um, whether or not they are able to vote by, say, taking down voting systems or um, all kinds of things. And you can mess up whether or not their vote counted by by hacking into, into the back end. And there is a lot of activity right now in this country that I think one should basically think of not that differently from uh, external events to, to affect an election, which is... Be- organized efforts to keep people, usually young and non-white people, from voting. I mean, I think in Georgia, for instance, you have this, I think, is just crazy. It is a crazy thing that elections are often administered by people running in them. But Kemp, the Republican candidate for governor, is the secretary of state, which is to say he is the state's key elections administrator. And he's running this very big voting purge in which 70 percent of the people being purged from the system, unless they are able to figure it out in time and, and, and get out of it, are African-American. And I don't know, like, it's obviously different than the question of people might vote in, hack into our voting systems. But because I don't think that we actually have a view in this country, despite saying we do, that the vote is sacrosanct and that what should happen is it should be as easy as possible for people who want to vote to to vote and then have that vote count. There are a lot of efforts to interfere 
with whether by by just making it really difficult for people to vote. I mean, in the places where you have very long election lines, those places are hugely disproportionately non-white. Like there are all these ways that you can get into the transmission process between I want to vote and I have voted and my vote has counted. And there's, a I think, a pretty organized effort, primarily on the part of Republicans right now, to change the election results from what they would be if it were easy for everybody to vote. And like, again, I wish we didn't see that as just a normal part of partisan politics. I wish we saw that as a violation of like transpartisan ideals and like how our political system is meant to work in the way we see it that way when it is done by outside actors. So I actually, I, I want to read a quote. It's from 1980, and it's from the late conservative activist Paul Weyrich, who in 1973 helped to found the, the Heritage Foundation. And in 1974, he founded the Committee for the Survival of a Free Congress, which basically his entire goal was to go after uh, left-leaning and labor groups that he believed were keeping conservatives from dominating Congress. And so in 1980, he gave a speech in which he said, Now many of our Christians have what I call goo-goo syndrome good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. And I think that that's a really interesting point that he made there, and I think that that's a point that was also made by Phyllis Schlafly and other conservative activists of 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, which is that you should not have that many people voting because the wrong people will vote. And, you know, there's a quote from Phyllis Schlafly in a column for WorldNet Daily a couple of years ago, the late uh, conservative activist, who said that early voting violates the spirit of the Constitution and facilitates, in her terms, illegal votes that cancel out the votes of honest Americans. Because there's this idea that, like, there are a certain group of people who should be voting and there are a certain group of people who shouldn't be voting. And it's pretty clear in, you know, the view of these conservative activists that the people who should be voting are the people who are white living in kind of middle class areas and who they believe are somehow immune to quote unquote identity politics and don't want to, you know, I believe that there was a quote in, I can't remember which election it was, but the idea that like some people are just voting for free stuff. And so I think that we want to believe that you know, everyone across the board wants people to vote. And I think that that's something you're starting to get a little bit. But for a long time, there has been an idea across a swath of the right that actually, no, you don't want that many people to vote. You don't want voting to be easy. You don't want voting by mail. You don't want absentee voting to be widely accessible because when too many people vote, in general, Democrats win. You know, in a very high turnout elections in general, Democrats are successful. And that's why, you know, we've saw in 2010 and 2014, 2014 is one of the lowest turnout midterm elections in the history of this country. And it's one in which Republicans dominated because in general, the people who would be motivated to go to vote in those types of elections tend to be older and tend to be white and tend to be already part of the Republican base. And I remember in the olden days of when I worked at an LGBT rights foundation, we did a lot of GOTV outreach for the 2014 election and just the degree to which people were just not interested because it wasn't a presidential election. It didn't seem that critical, but the people who were interested were generally 
right-of-center conservatives. And so I think that we can talk about voter ID laws and gerrymandering and some of the issues that have to do with limiting black voters, but that hasn't happened on accident. It has been a purposeful effort by a swath of people, generally on the right, who believe that this country works best when fewer people vote and fewer people are able to vote. Yeah, and there's a great new book. Um, I actually just had her on my other podcast by Carol Anderson called One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And I, I recommend listening to the podcast. It came out, I think, about a month and a half ago. And she goes through this. And, and one of the things that I think is really important about this is that what you have running through the entire history of these kinds of arguments, going all the way back to, to 100, 150 years ago, is... Once America begins to develop an idea of itself as a democracy, a small-D democracy, which doesn't happen that early, right? I mean, initially, like, you can't vote if you're a woman. You can't vote if you're African-American. You can't, you can't vote in all kinds of circumstances if you're, if you're Native American. I mean, democracy is a very thin idea early on in America, even as it was an expansion from what it was in most of the rest of the world. But as we begin to develop an idea of ourselves is different than that. The kinds of efforts you're talking about, Jane, they begin to develop these... It's like, what's almost a way to put them? These, like, second-order justifications, right? So poll taxes are a way to keep African Americans from voting, where they are applied, how they are applied, the nature in which they are applied, who is administering them. But the way they are justified is in this, like, non-racialized context. We're like, well, you know, if we're going to have people voting, then we should make sure they know enough to cast a judicious vote, right? Because there is always a strain of that in American life, right? That you should have to earn your voting, that you should have to earn as a citizen the right to participate in our democracy. And, you know, a lot of the, the stuff like these voter purges, oh, we're just trying to prevent fraud. Now, the fact that there basically is no in-person voter fraud of the kind these purges would prevent, but they prevent a lot of people from voting who should. Yeah, doesn't matter, right? We're just trying to prevent fraud. And, and that sounds good to most people. You shouldn't have voter fraud. And it's what's made this very difficult to combat over time, because if people would just stand up and say, listen, like we want fewer people to vote, um, or more to the point, we want fewer people who won't vote for us to vote, we could, I guess, have that conversation. But given the way America understands itself, it probably wouldn't go very far. What you end up is having a conversation in which that is the end people are very clearly pursuing. Doing, but they are hiding it. They are cloaking it in all these other approaches. I mean, there was this thing, I, I think it was all, maybe it was also in Georgia, you probably know, Jane, where they were trying to take out a bunch of polling places in heavily non-white communities. The Republicans were on the grounds that the polling places were not Americans with Disabilities Act compliant. Yes, I remember. I remember that. Yeah, the, the argument being like they're not accessible. So they were trying to take out these polling places, not replace them with accessible polling places, not replace them with more, just have them gone. And the idea was with them gone, there'd be fewer polling places. It would take much longer to vote. People were going to come. They don't get the day off. I mean, I'm a huge fan of the idea that voting should be a holiday. They don't get the day off. They're working. They come up. The line is two and a half hours long. They leave. And meanwhile, like what they're saying is not that, that these people shouldn't be able to vote. It's that these polling places are not ADA compliant. We're just worried about the accessibility of polling places. It's genuinely stomach turning. What I would say as a criticism here of Democrats is that it is something Democrats have a defensive reaction to, right? They Like when confronted with something like a harsh voter ID law um, or the reduction of polling places on, on ADA grounds in order to prevent um, people from being able to vote in a timely manner, they will get defensive of voting. But they 
they don't really have an offensive idea of like democracy. They're not in a consistent way pushing pro-democratic efforts. And I don't mean big D democratic, I mean small D democratic. You see it in some states, there's been a, a move towards automatic voter registration, voting by mail. There, There is some good stuff here. But as a party, as a, as a generalized part of rhetoric, given that they have a view that more people should vote, and that is a view that accords very well with what Americans think their view of this is, you do not see a real prioritization in the party of making America a more, again, small D democratic place. In fact, you see a lot of fear from that on the theory that, you know, if, say, Puerto Ricans and residents of the District of Columbia were states and they had representation in Congress, well, that might seem unfair to Republicans, even though it's just like, these are American citizens who should have representation. Like, at the same time that Republicans are, are being very aggressive in their efforts to hold back the vote, you do not, I think, see a serious counter effort by Democrats to establish, no, like this country believes itself to be a democracy. We should construct it like a democracy. We should make it easier for people to vote. We should make it easier for you to vote if you work hard or work two jobs. There should be a day off for voting. I mean, there's a lot you can do here. It's a great Brennan Center report on this that we should talk about. But it is not at a national or coordinated level a democratic message you hear. All right, let's take a quick break and then jump into the report. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive. It kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. All right, Ezra, are you ready to talk about this report? I am ready. I'm always ready to jump into a Brennan Center report. I'm very excited. So the Brennan Center for Justice came out with a report, Democracy, an Election Agenda for Candidates, Activists, and Legislatures. And it's really interesting because it talks about specific ideas and concepts that would help to modernize the voting process and make the voting process more accessible and also improve redistricting efforts and representation. And it goes into things about, you know, automatic voter registration, expanding early voting, because, you know, voters in 13 states cannot vote early, and there's been major cutbacks in some states to cut back on early voting. But it's really interesting because I think it really gets to your point, and I'm going to use the term progressive, but I don't mean like liberal progressive. I mean like a forward-thinking agenda for how to think about voting because I think that the reaction has been, as you said, this very much like Republicans don't want us to vote, so we will vote more, but not thinking about how we vote or when we vote, or how to make voting easier, and you know how to put that forward in action. So there's so much here. So I just want to run through a couple of the proposals of the report, because 
they're just like when you hear most of them, it's such obvious common sense. So enact automatic voter registration, which means that when you um, interact with the government, like let's say you get a driver's license or, or you get student loans, you are registered to be a voter unless you decline to be. So that just means it's much easier for you to vote in the future. Expand early voting. Uh, it should just be <laughs> you should just be able to vote early because it's easier. Prevent long lines at the polls. I really like this one. I think it's really important. And by the way, it's been recommended by bipartisan commissions, um, including I think one that was co-chaired by Presidents Carter and Ford, if I'm, I'm not wrong, although I could be misremembering that. But the basic idea there is no one anywhere in America should wait more than 30 minutes to cast a vote. And that seems reasonable to me. <laughs> like 30 minutes is plenty of time to wait to cast a vote. They proposed restoring the Voting Rights Act. Um, the Supreme Court gutted this. I think it's really worth noting that one of the dynamics in America right now is you have a Republican Party that keeps winning presidential elections while losing the popular vote, has a six-point advantage in the Senate. Um, I, I just had this podcast with Nate Silver, and one of the things he was talking about was if you compare the average state to the population as a whole, it's six point more Republican. So Republicans have this persistent advantage in the Senate. And between those two things, they've been able to get persistent advantage in the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is then passing laws to help make elections easier for Republicans, um, including gutting the pre-clearance side of the Voting Rights Act. So they, they recommend restoring that. Restoring voting rights to citizens with past criminal convictions. I, I know people argue about this, but I have never understood why you are no longer part of the American community if if you have a criminal conviction. Protecting eligible voters from improper purges of voter rules, protecting against deceptive election practices, hardening voting security. I want to stop on this hardening voting security thing for, for another moment because it, it connects to our earlier conversation. There is a bipartisan act in the Senate. It's by um, Senators Amy Klobuchar and James Lankford. I believe it's called the Safe Elections Act. I, I could be misremembering this. It does a bunch of things. One of the things it does is it does random audits of um, voting across the country so you can see if something is going wrong by creating the capacity to audit a vote after the fact, um, audit using paper voting, which in, in theory would be would be um, pushed under this. You would be able to see, hey, was there something that happened in the way that the machines reported the vote that we're not seeing in the paper printouts that were verified by the voters themselves? That was going to pass. It was scheduled. And then it died. And why did it die? The White House killed it. And why did the White House kill it? They said they cannot abide by any measure that would transfer power from the states to the federal government. Now, putting aside that they constantly have measures that would transfer power from states to the federal government, like, <laughs> I'm not going to go deep into this, but there's a lot of hypocrisy here. The idea that that is why they didn't want that bill that they didn't want that bill at all, right? That they didn't want a bill making sure the vote could be verified as being legitimate uh, and, and correctly counted. It's so telling. It is so unbelievably telling. It should be such a scandal. And the fact that it isn't um, breaks my heart a little bit. There's a lot in here. And you could just do a lot of other things. I mean, I brought up the Puerto Rico and D.C. thing. That's been on my mind a bit because Sheldon Whitehouse, who's a, a Democrat from Rhode Island in the Senate, one of the most thoughtful and government reformist types, he was asked about this. And he said, basically, like, totally waved away the D.C. thing. He said, I just wish Rhode Island got the federal jobs and outlays D.C. gets, which is irrelevant to voting. And then he said on Puerto Rico, well, we can't really do that because in order to preserve, quote, the balance, Republicans would then need, like, new states of their own. And what? Like, why? Like, <laughs> if there are people in this country who don't have representation they should have, and if they had that, they would vote for Democrats. Like, that's not unfair. That, like, then Republicans should have to compete harder to get their vote. Like, that's how this works. 
there's something like really wrong here. There's been a total loss in the ability to talk about our political system and participation in it from a principles level and then have an agenda like flowing out of those principles that people actually push. And I think you really see it in this Brennan report. There's so many good ideas here and they are just not a major focus of the Democratic Party, which then is not able to focus on the policies it would prefer to focus on because it keeps losing elections despite having more people vote for it. It's like a pretty bad equilibrium. Right. And I I think it really does get to something I want to kind of hammer on this point a little bit is that we are not operating in a world in which both parties are attempting to make pitches to voters and then voters have the opportunity to say like, hmm, this one or this one. I think Democrats want to believe that we're operating at equilibrium at which, you know, if they just present the best possible ideas and Republicans present the best possible ideas, people will select the Democratic idea because I think that there's a concept you know, I think a lot of people have written on this that like conservatism is not an inherently popular ideology. And I think that that's something that a lot of people even, some, you know, I talk to a lot of conservatives where they recognize like it's difficult to pitch people on this. You know, they can talk about limited government and low taxes, which is something that like you can talk to people about. But kind of the the whole depth and breadth of the conservative movement has not ever been based on the, the idea that it's inherently popular. It's time to recognize that for a lot of our politics, there's one side that's like, ah, yes, we're having this competition of ideas. And there's the other side that's saying, no, we very much would prefer not to do that. And so this report's really helpful because these aren't wild and crazy concepts. These are, you know, a lot of states already have a lot of this in place, you know, voting by mail, for example, which has been a tremendous success in the Pacific Northwest. But I think that there's an idea that because they would encourage more people to vote or make voting easier, that they would inherently make it easier for Democrats to win, which it's not how it should work. It's not how it should work that you don't do something that's inherently good because it might help the people you don't like. And yet that's where we live now. But I want to push on this a little bit because I think it I think it treats American politics is too static because I, I see this a lot. So, so Matt, I thought spoke to this really well in his really great piece on the Hack App, which again, if people have not read that, it's not quite this conversation, but they should read it. Um, and he talks about the there, there's all these studies trying to quantify the push that Fox News and Sinclair give um, Republicans, and you know, Fox News going back to the 08 election appears to be giving Republicans six points more in the popular vote than they would otherwise have, something in that range. Um, it's pretty big. So you imagine taking that away, and then all of a sudden, like you can look at that and say, oh, Republicans would never win an election again. But of course, they would win elections again. What would happen is that. They would be appealing to an electorate that reflects the electorate kind of naturally a little bit more. And so they would moderate in some important ways. And you've seen you've seen Republicans do this. And so um, I take your point, Jane, that conservatism um, in its pure forms or in, in the pure forms of some of the people who would like to define it may not be popular. Right. I think like a Mike Lee conservatism where you kind of dismantle or, or Rand Paul, like where you dismantle Medicare and you dismantle and you privatize Social Security, you do all these different things. Um, it, it may not be popular. But Republicanism can be quite popular, right? Uh, and it often. I, has I think been that popular. that's an important point. Like that, that is that's good. Yes. Ronald Reagan was popular. George W. Bush did not win his first campaign for the presidency, but did beat John Kerry um, in his second campaign for the presidency. Like it can be perfectly popular. You have a Republican governor in Massachusetts who's extremely popular. Like there are a lot of ways for Republicans to be popular. The problem with this is that it's distorting everything. It's allowing Republicans to compete for 
less of an electorate and and just like like let's be flat about it a more white electorate an older electorate um to some degree a richer electorate than the one they would be competing for if voting was easier and if they're competing for that broader electorate they would have to appeal to that broader electorate and they may do a really good job of it right they may kick democrats ass like i think it's a totally like plausible outcome here certainly in you know over a couple of election cycles like there's always a sort of lurking idea of like reformicon conservatism that you know you could imagine some like a Marco Rubio pushing, um, you know, there are people out there who who could do it, but it doesn't happen because they're they've reconstructed their base through gerrymandering. They have reconstructed their districts, and so the crowd they are playing to is a somewhat smaller crowd, and it allows them to spend some of the support they would otherwise have to win on being a, a little bit more of a ideologically extreme party than, than they would be. And I think that's bad for politics, too. Like, I think that they should have to be competing for the country as it is, not elector, not an electorate they've kind of chosen or where they've shaved off some of the edges that would hurt them. I really don't want the idea here to be that, like, if we had a more small-D Democratic country, if, like, we had a country where the will of the people was more cleanly expressed, the Republicans would never be competitive again. They would be. Right. They would just have to compete. And right now, they have created this situation where they don't have to compete for a lot of votes they would otherwise have to win in order to win power. And, like, that allows them to hew to a more unpopular agenda than would otherwise be possible. Right. And I, I think it's interesting. Um, we had a conversation, uh, Matt, Dara, and I, a couple of weeks ago on black conservatism. And I actually, I sat down with the president of the Heritage Foundation a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kay James, who's African-American. And we talked about this issue about how, you know, why have Republicans stopped reaching out to African-Americans? And you know, this is not a new phenomenon. And I think that there have been kind of small efforts, but in general, they've kind of written off African-American votes. And she very plainly told me that I needed to know what the hell was going on here, too, because I don't understand either. And so this is obviously a very, it's a long thread there. But I think that the idea that both parties should have to speak to all people. And it's interesting because I think that there's been a lot of um, conservatives writing about how liberals have rediscovered federalism and how liberals are you know, talking about local issues and that's how they're appealing to voters. And we saw that in special elections in Virginia and elsewhere last year, and we're seeing that again this year. But the idea that there could be campaigns that focus both on national issues and on local issues and both candidates would need to compete on the actual issues and a talk to everyone. And I think that that's been something that Democrats have attempted to do. And I th- we, we're seeing a little bit of um, some pushback on that. I read an interesting piece actually in the Weekly Standard that was talking about how um, African voters perceive Claire McCaskill because apparently you know, she has not been doing the outreach that they would like to see. And yet you're not seeing from Republicans, you know, Republicans aren't like, aha, we will take this. We will go to African-American voters and talk about how we can pitch this better, talk about how we are a better option. They're just noticing that the liberal who should be doing that isn't. They're not filling in that gap. And so I think that if your goal is to have all candidates from all parties have to try to talk to all people and present why their ideas are better, not just why the alternative is worse, but why their ideas are better. I think that that should be the goal. And I, I, I agree with you. I think that while conservatism is a specific pitch that I personally think is just difficult to sell on people, Republicans have been very popular because I think in some senses, you know, popular Republicans have occasionally just given up on certain segments of conservatism. There's a reason why Ted Cruz has never actually become president. 
I think that is a good place to end. That is the weeds. Hopefully our elections will be safer than we are concerned they will be. Thank you to uh, Jane for being here, to our producer and engineer Griffin Tanner, to DC Berkeley Studio, where I am currently podcasting out of. And we will see you again on Tuesday. <laughs>